screen door is not going to help keep the water from gushing in if you're on a submarine. It's useless. That's how one songwriter describes a faith without works. What does a life look like with a solid expression of faith, and how can that faith help us keep our head above waters when the waters are gushing in? That's today on the podcast. Hey, this is Marisa from the Tower Hill production team. Thank you so much for listening in to our Tower Hill podcast. Wherever or whenever you're listening, we hope that this podcast blesses you and that you feel free to share it with someone that you know. The struggle is real, from roadblocks to hardships to tragedy. Sometimes it's painful just to put one foot in front of the other. But God is strong in that struggle. And that struggle itself may be more than what we think it is. This week, Pastor Jason explores what it means when the Bible asks us to consider it pure joy, all trials and tribulations. Let's check it out right now. Starting a new sermon series today about that very topic. But first, I want to share with you how I view myself. I consider myself to be what we call book smart. The reason I consider myself to be a book smart is because I am a classic overachiever. Classic. How do you know you're a classic overachiever? If you have ever written something on your to-do list you've already done just so you can cross it off, you're an overachiever. Hate to break it to you, you're an overachiever. Well, I was just, I mean, total overachiever. All through high school, college, as long as I can remember, that's how I was wired. You know, so I went to seminary. I went to Princeton Seminary. Why? I certainly felt called there. But I also knew that it was one of the most academically rigorous seminaries I could go to. It's like in high school. I couldn't take enough AP classes. Why? I have no idea. I was just an overachiever. And I felt like I had to work harder than anybody else. That for, like, the smart kids, it came really easy. For me, it just took a lot of work. A lot of endurance, a lot of patience. And uh, so, so I graduated uh, Princess Ceremony with a 3.9 GPA. And to be perfectly honest with you, I am angry to this day that I got a B plus. <laughs> I got a B plus. It was actually my favorite class. And the entire class grade was based on one paper. And I was so mad. It's still like I'm getting like mad just thinking. I missed a 4.0. I went to my doctoral program at Fuller Seminary, I graduated 4.0, because that's the way it should be for us classic overachievers. Here's the problem, though. I excelled in everything seminary, because I knew that's where God was calling me, and that was going to be my future, and my career path, and, and my ministry all like wrapped up in one. There was a lot of pressure on that for me. I wanted to be the best that I could be. But when I got to my first church, I realized I didn't know nothing. Book smarts did not take me where I needed to go. I remember going to my, leading my first session meeting. So for those who are new to the Presbyterian way of life or Presbyterian language, the session is the board of elders that run the church. And the pastor is one of the elders, but you're outnumbered. There's 14 other ones, at least, and if you have multiple pastors. So... I get to the first meeting in my first church, and I, I remember sitting down, and uh, somebody, right off the bat, I think they already smelled blood in the water. They said, uh, we're going to be running this meeting according to Robert's rules, right? Absolutely. Who's Robert? 
right? Like, no idea. Robert's Rules of Order, what is that? No clue. And then preaching. Now listen, sermon writing in seminary was awesome. You got to write two sermons in a semester. And then like, I, I give a sermon, and then I'm like, well, wait a minute, I got this again? Like this week? How am I going to do that? I don't have time for that. Who has time to write that? Because listen, when you're a pastor, you realize Sundays come with alarming regularity. You got, you got to have something to say. People are counting on the fact that you have something to say. And I'm just like, I'm going to run out of stuff. Where, like how long before I'm just out of material? I just got to hang it up. Book smarts didn't take me where I really needed to go in my faith, in my career path. It was on-the-job training. What do I do when someone in church isn't happy with a decision that was made? Do I say, well, what's wrong with them? (laughs) Sometimes. But no, you learn. You learn, like, no, that's part of leadership and growth and moving forward. It's all on-the-job stuff that you just simply can't teach academically. Where am I going with this? Well, see, I think we view discipleship, following Jesus, as if we are overachievers in a classroom. The discipleship means it's, it's a continual gathering of knowledge. That if I just get my GPA high enough, then I could be a good follower of Jesus. And the reason I'm not a good follower of Jesus is because I don't know. I don't know enough. I don't know too much, eh? You know, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know where all the books of the Bible are. I don't know how many books there are. I don't know when Jesus said this. I didn't even know there was a Bartholomew. I had no idea. Like, it's like we think discipleship is like we're practicing to be on spiritual Christian jeopardy or something. And then, and then, like, and then like, we get to heaven and then they're going to ask us all these questions to make sure we get in, right? You didn't put it in the form of a question. I'm sorry. Sorry, you're not in. Like, that we're just constantly training That it's all about kind of our spiritual GPA is what makes us good followers of Jesus Christ. The problem with that is, is that we end up not doing anything. We spend all of our time in the classroom because we feel we're not qualified to go out into the field. But it's actually out in the field that we become qualified. It's out in the field that we learn how to live out what we say we believe. And many Christians are paralyzed by this. Absolutely paralyzed. Most of us think discipleship is 99% school and 1% on the job. Like, I learn about Jesus, and then I go out and I volunteer for something, or I do something, and that's my, or I wear a cross to work or something. You know, like, that's my on the job, like 1%. But it's never what God intended. Do you know how I know that? Jesus did not pick academics to follow him to be his disciples. Quite the opposite, intentionally. Book smarts waved the 12 disciples bye-bye long time before Jesus found them. He chose people who had already learned a trade, which meant they did not make it to the next round of school. Why? Because it's about doing. It's about doing even more than it's about knowing. I think discipleship is more like an apprenticeship program where it's more like 20% school and 80% on-the-job training. Like, the school part matters, 
it's not nothing. You have to learn some things. You have, we encourage you all the time to grow in your faith, to learn more about God. But the real learning happens when you're out there in the field, when you don't know what you're doing, when you're wondering who Robert is before you lead your meeting. The point is, the fact that you don't have a clue means that you're probably right where God wants you. He wants you to trust on him for the things you don't know how to do. Because that's going to open you up to following him more closely. So this sermon series is about faith and action. And the title of it comes from a, a song uh, that m- some of you might know if you're into like early Christian music. Rich Mullins wrote a song said, Faith without works is like a screen door on a submarine. Doesn't make any sense. Right? So faith without any action, faith, head knowledge, and no getting out in the field doesn't make any sense. And we're going to be going with this idea as we follow the book of James. If you did uh, the Facebook Bible study on the book of James, we're going to be covering a lot of the same ground. Because I think this is so, so important. You've got to have both together, otherwise it doesn't make any sense. And I love the lyrics. You should check out that song. Make sure you Google it. Rich Mullins. Screen door on a submarine. Because the lyrics are great. Yeah, see, you know. You know that song. A lot of people, if you're like old school Christian music, you know you've heard that song before. Faith and works. Listening and doing. Taking action. On-the-job training, not just school. So let's get into it. This is James chapter 1. James begins talking about this by talking about what happens when you go through hard times, when you go through trials and temptations, then what are you supposed to do? What's your on-the-job training of how you deal with these things when they happen, not if? Because we all are living the human life. We're going to experience trials and temptations. This is how you respond. Verse 2. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds. All right. You probably need to stop right here. If I were attending this Bible study, this is the part where I'd be like, nope. <laughs> right? Like, who's in? Like, what a way to start off. All right, everyone. You know those things that are just slowly killing you inside? Consider it pure joy, man. Woo! What? What are you talking about? He continues, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Then he doubles down on it. Verse 12, blessed is the one who perseveres under trial. Blessed. Like, you will be blessed more than if this would not have happened. Blessed is the one who perseveres under trial because having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who loved him. I'm like, James, man, you're going to have to give me more. What is this about? I want to ask a question. What do you think happens... In, in your life, when all obstacles are removed. You know, there's a term for this uh, that I just recently discovered, and I was reminded of this morning after first service, that in education, they're starting to call them lawnmower parents. Not helicopter parents, lawnmower parents, because they're removing all the obstacles from their child's path so that they can 
make sure they have a straight, clean line ahead. But what happens when we do that? What happens in life when all obstacles are removed? Go ahead and just turn to someone next to you that you're sitting with and and answer that question. What happens? Introverts, again, I'm very sorry. This will only last a minute. Turn to someone next to you and just, what, what happens when all the obstacles are removed? I know some of you are like, Lord, curse me with such a thing. That's right. <laughs> I was quick. You got all figured out. Great. So what happens? What happens? Let's just hear from a couple people. When all obstacles are removed, you don't learn anything. Become your own God. Ooh, that was deep. That was good. You went there. That's right. (laughs) Others in the back there. Yep. (laughs) Life would be boring, but you wouldn't mind if it was once a week. That's good. That's good. Yeah. Haven't you noticed there's something about the struggle that does something in us or that can do something in us that is worth the struggle? I mean, I'm not saying every struggle, but isn't it possible that the reason that struggle exists has to do with the idea that he's talking about, that that there's perseverance, and that somehow on the other side of perseverance is blessing. That the struggle itself has, it can have, a meaning and a purpose to our own growth, our own development. I, I was... I came across this article in GQ Australia, which I don't typically read, (laughs) but it was with actor Chris Hemsworth, and I thought he really captured this idea. Man, it's so unfortunate being Chris Hemsworth. How could you look like that and live every day? So this was an article by Mike Christensen on October 2nd, and we'll share with you a little bit. He was talking about his wealth. He leads off by saying, I feel gross about it, he says of his wealth. I remember saving up for a surfboard when I was younger. The surfboard was 600 bucks, and I saved up for a whole year with Dad's help. I didn't even want to surf on it for fear of damaging it. It taught me so many lessons about appreciation and working hard for something. When I think about my kids, I don't want them to miss that joy. I, I love that he uses that word, miss that joy. Elsa and I talk a lot about how we instill that same appreciation and respect for things. I don't want them to feel like they're privileged in any way. The fact that we have money and their parents are famous, that somehow they're special, that scares me. Because we we grew up with no money. I feel like he was able to capture something that's really important about struggle. That when everything is just simply handed to you, you do not appreciate it. And if there was a lesson in there to be learned, it's, you're just not going to pay attention enough. There's something about the struggle that gives life or can give life. It can also push us the other way. We're like, you know what, I'm just not even going to engage with God over this. I've, you know, I go through this struggle, well, I'm, I'm giving up on God. That happens too. When, if you did the Facebook series with me, I used this um, illustration because I think it's really important about struggle. It's like an egg that is hatching. So what a lot of farmers will tell you is they say if a, the, the struggle of a chicken as it's being hatched, a chicken is being hatched, is necessary in order for it to flourish. So if a chick gets stuck somehow, 
and can't seem to break through the egg. The worst thing you could do is crack that egg open and help it out. Why? Because it's actually during the struggle. There's a few reasons why. One of the reasons is, is during the struggle, the chick's able to, uh, the blood is able to pump harder in its body. And as a result, is able to stay warm on the outside of the egg. If you rob it of the struggle, it will not flourish. It simply will not survive. That there's something about the struggle that helps us to flourish. Then I think the other idea that goes with this is, well, every time I go through something hard, it means that God's testing me. And I say, I don't think so. Not necessarily. I think God can be. But I don't think every struggle that comes, comes your way is a result of God testing you. Just like I don't think every bad thing that happens in my life is Satan stuck his foot out and tripped me. I, I just think life is life. It involves struggle. We live in this fallen, broken world, and struggle is a part of it. People get sick. People get well. Bad things happen. Bad things happen to good people. Good things happen to bad people. It just happens. Not all trials are a test, but I think some of them definitely can be. That sometimes God will allow a struggle because he wants us to grow. He wants us to flourish. That flourishing is on the other end of the struggle. I was trying to figure out a practical example of this. And I was thinking about um, a couple of things in my life that many of you, if you've been with us for a while, you know my life story. But I was thinking of two different examples where I felt like God was not testing me in one in a certain struggle, and God was testing me in a certain struggle. The first is, if you know my story, you know that I lost my parents. I've actually lost three parents. So my mom, uh, when I was 26, uh, go ahead to the next slide. Uh, My stepfather, when I was 34, he was the father who raised me, and then my biological father just died this last year. And each and every time, I did not feel that because this struggle happened to me, that God was somehow testing me. I felt like it was tragedy. It was, it was largely, you know, one of it was disease that was outside control. Uh, the other two were uh, situations that were within their control. I mean, it was just, I don't think God was testing me because of that trial is the point that I'm trying to make. I think this is important because I hear this from people all the time. Well, God must be testing me. God said, you know, I lost my job. I feel like God's testing me. And I, maybe, maybe not. I don't think everything is a test. I do think that no matter what the struggle, God can help us to flourish as a result, one way or another. But another example that I shared with you is when I had that back injury three years ago. I I did feel like God was directly involved in that, that he was teaching me how to take care of myself when I am overwhelmed and stressed out. Like There was an important self-care lesson to be learned through that struggle. Sometimes it can be a test, sometimes it's not. The point is that struggle can be a source of flourishing. Then he starts talking about temptation, James does. 
said, so there's trials and then there's temptations. Verse 13, when tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. This is so important. God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. Because I've heard people say this too. God's testing me through this temptation. Or God's tempting me. No. No, let's get that out of the way. That's one thing we could clear up right here and now. God's not tempting you. Why? Because the temptation is trying to get you to sin. Hopefully for obvious reasons that is incongruous with the God that we know. That doesn't make any sense. Temptation is a direct result of our own stuff. It's like, you know, I feel like I'm really, really trying to lose weight. I'm going to go to Weight Watchers, but I go to Weight Watchers, look at what's right next to it. I mean, it's like a sign. It's like a sign that I'm supposed to. I love that. I wanted to call that Plan A and Plan B. That's, sorry. <laughs> but the point is, Temptation is something that comes from inside of us. So uh, let me continue with James' thought. This is verse 14. But each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. Don't be deceived, my dear brothers and sisters. Every good and perfect gift. If you brought your Bible, this is one to underline. Every good and perfect gift is from above. Coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights who does not change like shifting shadows. Our God is in the business of giving good and perfect gifts. He's not trying to give you a trick question to Christian Jeopardy. He loves you. He's not trying to get a gotcha moment. He wants you to endure no matter what trial or temptation comes your way, so that you will be blessed. You will flourish. So just to recap, what are some things that we should do? And the first one we come back to. When we're enduring trials and temptations, we should consider it pure joy. Not that it's fun, but that we know flourishing might be just around the corner when we're going through struggles. That the Lord's pumping that blood in us and eventually that will he can turn any horrible tragedy any situation he can find a way to bless you through it I feel like um, I need to say this I have a pet peeve about the following phrase There must be a reason for this. My pet peeve is, it's assuming that God is allowing all these things, terrible things to happen because of a reason. I I have a really hard time with that. The reason is, it doesn't seem like the God I know. I think it's meant to comfort us. I think it actually paints a wrong picture of God. Well, this must be happening for a reason. Maybe, maybe not. But no matter what the reason, God can make you stronger 
He can help you to persevere through that and do something in you as a result. The second one is that blessing comes through faithful perseverance. Blessing comes through faithful perseverance. And then the third, temptation is not the same thing as testing. So don't blame God every time you feel tempted to go to Cold Stone. <laughs> There's another uh, great scripture that I want to share with you. 1 Corinthians 10, 13. This is Paul um, sharing about how does God handle temptation. No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. In other words, God is in or even interceding in our own self-enticed temptations. That's how much God loves you. He's even trying to intercede for your own heart's proclivity to sin. And then lastly, to remember, number four, God only gives good and perfect gifts. Any good and perfect gift that you've received is from God. Where is all this land? I think it reminds us that part of living this Christian life is is on-the-job training. And not if, but when you face trials and temptations. That you have enough trust to allow God to see you through them. To know that flourishing is just around the corner. And that he will not leave you or forsake you. He has plans for you. 